seated this morning. <clears throat> it sounds like we may be having a little bit of cutting in and out, or is that just what I'm hearing up here? Just a little bit? Okay. All right. We're good. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, we are almost to the end of a series that we have been doing on the United Church of Christ's Statement of Faith. We have one more section and then a little benediction, and we're going to spread those out over the next two weeks because this last section is like the grand finale. Really, these two final sections, the one we studied last week about God calling us into the church and this one about God's promises, they're like the end of the fireworks display when everything just goes nuts. Roman candles and big colorful fireworks and the ones that are just loud booms and the ones that look like popcorn and the glitter streamers, everything going off at the same time. Everything has been building to this. So finally, for the first time, let me read to you the entire statement of faith. We believe in God, the eternal spirit, who is made known to us in Jesus, our brother, and to whose deeds we testify. God calls the worlds into being, creates humankind in the divine image, and sets before us the ways of life and death. God seeks in holy love to save all people from aimlessness and sin. God judges all humanity and all nations by that will of righteousness declared through the prophets and the apostles. In Jesus Christ, the man of Nazareth, our crucified and risen Lord, God has come to us and shared our common lot, conquering sin and death and reconciling the whole creation to its creator. God bestows upon us the Holy Spirit, creating and renewing the church of Jesus Christ, binding in covenant, faithful people of all ages, tongues, and races. God calls us into the church to accept the cost and the joy of discipleship, to be servants in service of the whole human family, to proclaim the gospel to all the world and resist the powers of evil, to share in Christ's baptism and eat at his table, to join him in his passion and his victory. God promises to all who trust in the gospel forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace, courage in the struggle for justice and peace, the presence of the Holy Spirit in trial and rejoicing, and eternal life in that kingdom which has no end. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto God. Amen. Woo! Good stuff, right? It's what, 99 degrees out here and I've got goosebumps. I know, last week, I was all about the cost of discipleship and joining Christ in his passion. But this statement ends on a really high note by reminding us that God is faithful. That as bad as things are right now, this is not the way that things will stay. God is drawing all of creation towards redemption, towards wholeness, towards shalom, flourishing. One day, we do not know when, God will renew all of creation and God's kingdom will be fully revealed. 
And the challenge and the opportunity for us who follow Jesus now is to live like that is already true, even as we work on it. And that's where the promises of God come in. I have to be honest with you, this sermon has tripped me up all week. Because it is sticky to talk about the promises of God. If, for example, you were to ask the internet, what does God promise us, which I may or may not have done this week, you would get more responses than you could ever sort through. And if, for example, you were to search the Bible for each instance of the word promise approximately 250 times, depending on your translation, and then cross-reference those instances with another website that helps you understand the original language, which I may or may not have done this week, you would wind up with even more information that confuses more than it clarifies. Here's what I think is the bottom line. I think that most Christians want to believe that God promised them, that God promises them the things they already want, or better yet, the things they already have. And if there's something they want that they don't have, then they find a way to say that was not technically a promise of God. Because, friends, honestly, when you go searching for what God promises us, in many cases it is subjective. Was this thing here? A promise to one specific person in one situation, or does it apply to all people for all time? Was that other thing there something God promised, or just something that God said, and is there even a difference? You see how it gets messy real fast? And that is frustrating to us because promises matter, don't they? They mattered in the biblical worlds, and they matter in our culture. Promises matter. Many of us have learned to be careful with the word promise, especially when talking to children. For kids, promise is a magic word that ensures that the thing being discussed will definitely happen. And truly, adults feel that same way. We feel a deep sense of betrayal and disappointment when a promise does not come true. Which is why we need to be really careful when we talk about what God promises us. And I think the statement of faith does that. I think it does a good job. I have said this to you before. This statement of faith is not a fence that defines our boundaries. This statement is a campfire that lights our center. This statement is designed to make lots of room for lots of different Christian beliefs. So when it comes to talking about God's promises, this statement, I think, is careful to say enough without saying too much. In my opinion, the promises that are included here are the most certain ones. The ones we can find over and over in lots of ways, in lots of stories in Scripture. They are the ones that ring true 
regardless of time and place and people. There are four of them, and so we're going to consider two of them this week and the other two next week. The first promise is forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace, which I guess could technically be two, but they're supposed to go together, so it's one. No matter when or where or who is asking, God promises forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace. Now remember what we said several weeks ago about sin. Very simply, the word sin is our Christian way of saying something is wrong here. If everything were fine, we wouldn't need God, and we wouldn't certainly need Jesus. But everything's not fine. Everything's not fine with our society. Everything's not fine with the way our country relates to other countries. Everything's not fine with the planet. Everything is not fine with me and with my own relationships. Something is wrong here. It includes me, but it's way bigger than me. It is systemic, and I'm part of it. I cannot fix it on my own, even in my own life. And if we look around, I think we have to admit that we cannot seem to fix it on our own either. So what I want you to remember when somebody talks about sin is this. One, it includes each of us and all of us, but is way bigger than any of us. Two, we cannot fix it on our own. And three, Jesus fixes it for each of us and for all of us. God promises us forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace. In Jesus' society, the most common metaphor for sin, because it's all a metaphor, was debt, like monetary debt, which is probably why Jesus talks so much about money. And so if we extend that debt metaphor, which Jesus does himself in his stories, forgiveness of sins is like the forgiveness of debt. Through the fullness of grace given to us in Jesus Christ, all our debts have been canceled. They've been canceled. They do not exist anymore. They're simply not on the books. They're gone. As the prayer says, God has forgiven us our debts, so we best be forgiven our debtors. This is a cosmic promise, a cosmic truth, one that in Jesus was accomplished once for all, and yet we continue to experience it in new and fresh ways. Or not. Because the statement of faith is clear about how these promises of God are enacted in our lives. It's at the beginning of this section. God promises to all who trust in the gospel. Trust is the basis for all of this. Trust is the way that the promises of God are made real in our lives. Trust is always the way forward. Let's go back to the debt example and see if that helps to clear it up. So let's say that I owed you some money. And one day you said to me, you know what, Pastor Beth, don't worry about it. 
just forget it. You don't owe me that money anymore. Great. But how do I make that real in my life? How do I stop worrying about paying you back? Well, I have to trust that you meant it, that the debt is really canceled. And if I don't trust that, a couple of things could happen. I could spend a lot of time and effort trying to pay you money that you've already told me I don't owe you anymore, which would get weird. Or I could walk around always wondering if you really meant it and constantly looking for signs that maybe you regret canceling that debt or worrying that one day you're going to go back on your promise and I am going to owe you that money. That's what happens if I don't trust that you meant what you said. The debt is canceled. You see how that sort of relates to God? In order for us to live in the promise that our sins are forgiven, that our debts are canceled, we have to trust that God means what God says. We don't earn it. It's done. Stop trying to pay back something you do not owe. Now, I need to pause here and say that sometimes trusting that it's true is not as simple as it sounds. Most people need something tangible, like a ritual or another experience to help us make that real. Plus, the forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace doesn't mean that we live however we want and we don't owe anything to anyone else. But today, we're talking about the promises of God. And the first promise for those who trust in the gospel is forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace. Wherever else we go, we have to start with an attempt to trust that. The second promise for those who trust in the gospel is courage in the struggle for justice and peace. And we wouldn't be the UCC if we didn't have something about justice and peace in here. The value of working for justice and peace is a core value for the United Church of Christ, and doing justice is part of our three-part focus here at Zion. And as we struggle for justice and peace, God promises us courage. Because, friends, pursuing justice and peace is a struggle. It does not come easy. It never does. Evil does not easily yield, and so we desperately need courage in order to face it. Remember the scripture we read in 2 Corinthians 4 last week? We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. Sometimes we have to stand next to the person who's being bullied. Sometimes we have to be the one to tell a family member that their behavior is not welcome in our house. Sometimes we have to be the one to sit down and stop talking so that someone else can be heard. I'm completely aware of how ironic that statement is as I stand up here. Friends, if we are tired 
of a certain type of Christianity getting all the attention, then it's time that we speak a little louder. We progressive Christians are pretty darn sure that we're right, but we are not very bold, except maybe on social media. We are more likely to avoid claiming the title of Christian than we are to step forward and try to change the narrative. Friends, it is at least half our fault that American culture only recognizes one type of Christianity. We have to be louder. And we can be loud without being rude. We can be bold without being hateful. We can be clear without being condemning. And if we want things to change, we have to step forward. We have to take the advice from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give you, who asks you to give the reason, the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage to be loud and bold and clear and prepared and gentle and respectful. And thankfully, courage is what God promises us. Note, please, that God does not promise us success. God doesn't promise that every time we are courageous, things are going to turn out the way we want. God doesn't promise that when we struggle for justice and peace, we will even see the fruit of our efforts in our lifetime. It may take longer. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice, for they will be filled. Not that they will necessarily be successful in their efforts. The fulfillment comes in the hungering. The courage comes in the struggle. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. The second promise for those who trust in the gospel is courage in the struggle for justice and peace. These are the promises of God. This is our foundation. Forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace, courage in the struggle for justice and peace which we experience through trust. These promises come to us by way of Jesus, the one who came to show us exactly what God is like, who shared in all our suffering, and through his crucifixion and resurrection, has reconciled all creation to its creator. This is why. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, whatever God has promised gets stamped with the yes of Jesus. 
In him, this is what we preach and pray. The great amen. God's yes and our yes together, gloriously evident. God affirms us, making us a sure thing in Christ, putting God's yes within us. By the Spirit, God has stamped us with God's eternal pledge, a sure beginning of what he is destined to complete. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. Friends, the promises of God to us are forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace and courage in the struggle for justice and peace. That's just the beginning. But let's start there. Let's trust that God will complete what God has started in us and in the world. Let's be filled with God's grace. Let's be loud and bold and clear and prepared and gentle and respectful. Let's trust God's promises together. Amen. As always, we end our time in the Word with a time of reflection. If you're new with us this morning, we just settle in. So would you find a space in your body this morning that is going to help you listen? Maybe you close your eyes to block out distractions. Maybe you gaze up. But whatever you do, would you unclench your jaw? Would you let your tongue drop down from the roof of your mouth and let your shoulders fall away from your ears? You might want to put both feet on the ground to remind you that you are grounded to this earth. And now I invite you to simply listen, not for my voice, but for the voice of the Spirit. Forgiveness of sins and fullness of grace. Courage in the struggle for justice and peace.
Now I'll say a closing prayer. Faithful, constant, ever-living God, help us to trust in your promises and to move forward as you are calling us to do. We are your people. We trust. Help us to trust even more. Amen.